0: If you don't give people all of the facts, that they will fill in the gaps with uh, what they think. And often mm-hmm. what they fill in the gaps with is wrong. The best phone call I ever made was the phone call I made to our attorney, and said, you know, we've had, a, we've had the potential of a breach here. And I said, I'm going to go on record with the franchisees and tell them what's going on. And uh, we butted heads over it. And they didn't want me to do it because, you know, we were still in the initial phases of assessment. And I said, that's not the way I'm going to treat my franchisees. They need to know what's going on.
1: Hey there, this is Ben. thanks for tuning in to lead the team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 2% of all podcasts globally. And that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe. So you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best selling author and in demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast,
0: the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben.
1: Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back. I have Craig Dunaway, who is COO of. Penn Station East Coast Subs, a regional sandwich chain based out of Cincinnati, Ohio, which operates in 15 states throughout the Midwest and has 319 locations, of which only one is actually company-owned, and the rest are all franchises. He's worked there for over 23 years, and he's been a huge part of their explosive growth, which we'll get into today. And Craig's background also includes 15 years of public accounting. and He graduated from Indiana University Southeast and serve as captain, that's right, captain of his college's basketball team. Craig, welcome to Lead the Team, sir. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today. So let's get into the nitty-gritty, and let's talk about the 2012 credit card breach. Go.
0: Yeah, so uh, in 2012, I was actually at a, uh, a conference in Las Vegas, and it was not a conference for fun, it was a conference for work. And uh, I received a call from my uh, from my IT guy and said that uh, we've had a couple restaurants that have had uh, credit cards compromised. Hmm. And it was pretty minor. You know, it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday afternoon. And I said, Larry, just just keep me posted. And uh, I was headed to the airport and uh, received another phone call and said it's now impacted about 34 restaurants. And so landed late on Thursday and on Friday, tried to assess the situation. And, uh, you know, at the time, you know, we had certainly many less restaurants than we do today and credit card breaches weren't as common back then as they are now. Now people have a credit card compromised or you read about a breach and uh, no big deal. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the time, it was a major deal. And, and, and right after that happened to us and our franchisees were, they were worried, you know, they were, yeah. what do we do? And I immediately came back to my office and we had prepared a, uh, a crisis management handbook. And first time I'd ever pulled it off the shelf. And basically wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, it, it not, I wanted to make sure I was managing the crisis well. And to me, you know, that when I looked at managing that crisis, it's all about communication. We, we are mm. big on communicating with franchisees, with employees. And, and I believe that if you don't give people all of the facts, that they will fill in the gaps with uh, what they think. And mm. often what they fill in the gaps with is wrong. And I remember early on, probably the best phone call I ever made was the phone call I made to our attorney and said, you know, we've had a we've had the potential of a breach here. And I said, I'm going to go on record with the franchisees and tell them what's going on. And uh, we butted heads over it. And they didn't want me to do it because, you know, we were still in the initial phases of assessment. And I said, that's not the way I'm going to treat my franchisees. They need to know what's going on. And we had to uh, we had to hire a, uh, a company called Verizon Forensics. And, you know, they had to assess where the problem came from. They knew where the problem came from. It was foreign, but they never could figure mm-hmm. out how they got into our system. Um, but we worked on this for 54 weeks. And over the course of 54 weeks, ben, I literally put out a memo every week to explain to the franchisees what was going on mm-hmm. and and. You know, the lesson I learned from that when you're dealing with people with conflict is how they, they're seeking, they, they need to know what's going on mm. and they need to understand it. And the more information that you can give them, certainly without compromising the investigation, but the more information that you can share, it, 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 it squelches the rumor mill. You know, it gives people peace and quiet and comfort to know that we were on top of this. And, you know, we had our our salesman at the time wanted us to uh, complete. There's a company called Franchise Business Review that evaluates brands and they evaluate those brands by polling their franchisees. And Mm. he asked me, he said, I'd like to do that. And I said, I don't know. I mean, we've had a credit card breach. Our franchisees are really tense. This may cost them some money. I'm not sure it's the right thing to do. But, you know, I didn't want to stick my head in the sand. We needed to know if our franchisees were upset about it, what was going on. And I said, let's do it. And we did. And uh, about six weeks later, the results came back and our franchisees, we won an award that year because we were one of the highest ranked, uh, you know, one of the highest ranked brands with respect to this. And I thought, you know, we did the right thing. We, We really, really did the right thing. So it was it was a. It was very hard at the time, a lot of tense nights. Uh I remember the night it happened. I st- stayed at the office until about midnight and called every franchisee. I wanted them to hear from me what was going on. So, wow. you know, just that constant drive of communication is really it, it really sets the tone for how I try to treat people and also how we try to treat our franchisees and our customers and
1: suppliers. So powerful. And I can see in that moment hesitating, like, well we don't have, I mean, sure. It took 54 weeks to probably get all the facts together and you couldn't wait that long. Right. And I think a lot of leaders in that situation, okay, first thing I'm calling my attorney, of course, <laughs> right. And, and secondly, they're going to, they're going to they're gonna probably say caution, caution, beware, beware. You don't want to say the wrong thing. Um. But you saw it as an opportunity to reach out. And I suspect that first email, what was that first email like? If you had to think back, I know it was a long time ago, but was it one of, Hey, we don't have the answers, but we're working on it. Or what
0: was the, that's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. was. We knew there was a problem. We were telling them that there's a problem and that we were going to be diligent with respect to resolving it. And we were going to be diligent in our reporting to them.
1: And so, I think, so again,
0: nice. as long as you keep people informed of those things, I think it gives them a little bit of a comfort. They knew what to expect because they knew there was going to be another memo coming from us as soon as we found out more information.
1: Love it. Yeah. It's don't, and I think you said something around something something like don't let, don't make other people, especially the most important, of the most important people in your organization, fill in the gaps for themselves. Right. But oftentimes but, they'll get it wrong. And the mind is sort of like that super scary movie. I was talking about over the weekend, the Blair Witch Project. Well, you never heard about that, but have yeah, you seen I, this movie? I'm
0: familiar with it, but I've not uh, not seen it.
1: Well, the, well, the gist is, is that you don't really see anything scary. You just hear and you, it's kind of blacked out and right. you, you're left to fill in the gaps yourself. And it's terrifying because of that fact.
0: Well, remember, remember the little, uh, like in kindergarten or first grade, where the teacher would line all the kids up in a circle and they would have tell a two or three sentence story and pass it around the <laughs> room, and then by the time it got back to the original person, it was not even close to the same story. So, yep, yep. you know, it's 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 a <laughs> message to me in crisis management that you have to control the content and not control it with conjecture, but with facts.
1: So, so nowadays, when uh, when you approach this um when you're thinking about getting your message out there are you do you rely well what are the different communication methods that you use
0: you know it 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 depends on what the message needs to be if it's time mm-hmm. sensitive you know when when right after the credit card breach at the company we created a texting system and we had not had that before because i thought what if we need to get a hold of somebody right away and and you know before you and I got online here, we were talking about COVID and, and people not being in the office and, and not being able to read email. And so I wanted to make sure that there's an immediacy when it's an immediate problem that needs to be addressed. So we, we are over communicators at the brand. Uh, we send out a, a newsletter to the owners mm-hmm. twice a month. Uh, I send out a state of the union twice a year so they know what the big picture topics are going on within the organization and what we see going forward. And then we send regular communications regarding financial performance. And, and, you know, we try to keep people focused on what's important to the brand. And, and, you know, I don't want to call it key performance indicators, I think that terms used too loosely, but, you know, to keep people, you know, part of our responsibility as a brand is to, is to maximize return on investment for franchisees. And so we mm-hmm. want to give them the tools to help them maximize the return on investment. But, I would say that we try to over communicate versus under communicate, and again, it goes back to that mantra of if you don't communicate, people will reach their own conclusions, and they may
1: be wrong. Hmm. All right. So you mentioned the pandemic. Why did the pandemic really create an opportunity for you and your team to shine in the whole organization?
0: You know, we—I uh, remember in February of of 2020, just when what in the world's going on in the world. And, uh, you know, we were paying close attention to it, but information was just so tough to come by at that point.
1: There and was well, there might have been a lot of information but going in different well, ways. Well, that's true. There it's was information,
0: but it goes back to the point about communicating Ugh. facts, right? <laughs> so uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: we, we went when the, the governor of Ohio basically shut down all restaurants on a Sunday. And, uh, you know, we call everybody into the office. Uh, We've got about 15 people in the office and explain what was going on. And uh, I was the president of the company up until a couple of years ago and then moved up to COO. And the gentleman who was VP of operations, senior VP of ops, moved up to president. And we went into the conference room and literally worked side by side for six months And it was that same communication point. Then we sat down, we tried to assess the situation. We knew people were going to panic. And basically what we needed to do was we needed to ensure the flow of product continued to our restaurants. because Meaning
1: meaning the meat, the the bread, like all all of the the
0: cheeses, the breads, you know, lettuce, tomatoes, insert product. And what we wanted them to do was focus on their customer and focus on their crew. You know their their team, and what we said we will do is we will take care of everything that's outside of your control. So Mm -hmm. we immediately set up daily calls with our distributor. We set up daily calls with our key supplier because you know it's it's not rocket science, but we're trying to keep the flow of product going from point A to point B. And point A is the plant, and point B is our restaurants. But there's a lot of hands that touch it in between, Mm -hmm. and. You know, we started we started crafting emails just like we did during during the credit card breach to tell franchisees what we were doing, what they needed to be concerned about. There was a lot of "Don't panic, Uh, we will be fine, we will get through this," and and never really knowing how long it would last. But there was never one second of doubt that we wouldn't get through this. We were just not going to quit. I mean, there was no quit in what we were going to do, and. You know, I think what it allowed us to do was was further forge relationships we had with our suppliers from over the years, because I've always been a uh, relationship first. Uh, We look at the product, we look at the relationship, and then we look at the price. And so I was going back to these suppliers and saying, we will take care of you guys. I'll take care. You got to take care of us. And we never treated them as a commodity. And I think our supplier base treated us very well and bent over backwards to help them because the way we had treated in the last 23, you know, 20 years since I'd been, you know, a Penn station. So, you know, I talked about the credit card breach. We sent out 52 memos over 54 weeks for the crisis management with COVID. We sent out a memo every day for the first 45 days. It was Mm -hmm. that fluid. And then it became about every third day. And, uh, we sent out same thing. We sent out over 100 memos dealing with COVID uh, and what to expect. And finally, you know, when it was the point where COVID was sort of behind us and sort of not, then we converted that to that newsletter that I was talking about. That become a different form of communication to our franchisees. We just no longer call it a COVID memo.
1: Want to boost your productivity and decision making. Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to binfanning.com slash insight. So what's the feedback or what's the feedback been from your franchise on your communication in a crisis and on a more regular basis? Outside you know, of
0: we, we also... Um We pull our franchisees at the end of the year to ask how we're doing. And and I believe I stand up in front of the annual meeting every year and say, you may not like the message that we're going to deliver, but we're going to deliver it with candor. We're going to deliver with honesty. You can take it to the bank. And we're also not going to work on pet projects. It has to be the greater good of the brand. It's not individual restaurants. It's a system that they bought into as a franchisee. And, you know, everybody looks at their circumstance through their own eyes. Mm. And and our responsibility and our team's responsibility is to look at it through the eyes of the brand. And, you know, when you put the brand first, when you're dealing with the franchisees and they intimately understand that, it goes back to the point that they may not always like the answer, but they know it's straight shooting. They know it's Mm -hmm. candid and and with the brand in mind. So it makes it easier when you're, you know, when you're focusing that way. But but you have to create that culture too. You can't give lip service to it, right? I mean, you have to walk the you have to walk the talk.
1: What what's interesting to me, one of the things that you said was talking about relationship building being really in, integral in terms of your approach. And I picked up on that and the listeners in here but when we got on the on the call, you know, sometimes I get on for interview, and it's like, Ben, let's get to the let's get to the interview. And you were asking me more questions uh about myself uh than I was even asking you. And this is not the approach I would think about from someone with such a heavy accounting background, uh, and someone from the I'll say the numbers side of the business and in operations. Uh, has this always has this approach always been part of just who you are, or has this been instilled in you, or have you developed it? Um, well, that's a that's uh-huh.
0: a really really good question. I have been accused many times over my career of not being a CPA. And uh, <laughs> all
1: right, what do you mean by that? Or what do they mean by that, I guess? Because so they're accusing you of that. Uh,
0: you know, I I, I I don't want to take a shot at my brethren, but, but you know, I think the stereotypical accountant is live and well, and uh, just numbers guy with no, your nose buried in a book. And I was mm-hmm. always, I was an auditor when I was in public accounting, and I felt like in order to do my job well, I needed to intimately understand how the business operated. I mean, how can you help somebody if you don't know what they do and why they do it and how they do it? And mm-hmm. so... I would go out to the warehouse and ask questions. You know, look at the line and see some product coming off the line, and asking about throughput and how they do certain things. And it just—I felt like what it allowed me to do was, even in public accounting, my job was to help clients maximize their profits, and it, it allowed me to—it it forced me to be inquisitive. Is basically what it did. But that—that that came hmm. second nature to me because I find it very interesting to know. I'm very interested in what motivates people if, mm-hmm. if it's in a contract negotiation or their personal life or whatever i, I want to know why did you do that and i don't mean that in a bad way i just want to understand the why behind it
1: yeah very very good so it sounds like it, it, it sort of is a natural gravitation of your of your curiosity i, I need to so. know people and for, and for the listeners he asked me about me, but then he's like, why are you doing, why'd you, why'd you get into podcasting? Like you wanted to know the why behind the podcast before we actually did the interview. So, uh, that was kind of a cool thing. Now, um, one of the things that, that in my, in my uh, you know, we, we, we pulled together information in preparation for the interview and I just have two words listed nursing home with a question mark. Uh what, what's the story there?
0: Well, you know, you asked me to talk about some, a couple leadership stories and I thought about my career. And when I was getting ready to go into my freshman year of college, I knew I wanted to be an accountant and I knew I wanted to run a CPA firm one day. Don't ask me why. well, my dad was in accounting, but he, he was in, uh, He was in charge of budgeting and forecasting at LN Railroad in Louisville, Kentucky. And so from the eighth grade on, I was taking accounting classes, and that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to be the managing partner at a firm. And if you said, what's a managing partner do? I would have said, I don't know. I just know they run the firm. But uh, in between high school and freshman year of college, an accounting position opened up at a nursing home. And uh, I applied for it with the husband-wife team who owned it. And then over the course of about two days, the receptionist quit, the office manager quit, the the lady who I was going to ultimately replace because she was getting ready to have a baby quit. And in about 16 hours of work in my first real job out of high school, I was thrust into sort of being in charge of the administrative side of a nursing home of which I knew nothing about
1: and, and baptism by fire and note in the Baptist Southeast
0: by fire. And, and, you know, what it, what it really taught me was just don't be afraid. I mean, you can go into something with trepidation, but, but at the same time, just be yourself and do your job and do what you think's right. And I got through it. Uh, you know, I, I th- I think back. I can't recall many stories from that time. I re- I remember even having this is semi more, but I remember even having to type death certificates, and I would have to literally get a doctor would come in and he would dictate, and I was the guy typing these things. And so I had to do. You literally
1: more. got beginning and end of the nursing home, right? Uh, you, was, were, you were a manager of the re- registration with the reception. And then doing death certificates. It
0: was it was <laughs> the greatest experience that was odd. I, I'll tell you just a short story. I remember one time that I needed to ask the head nurse an accounting question on an invoice because I literally didn't know where to code it. And I noticed that every time someone said to come someplace stat, that they would come really quickly. And so I I don't remember her name, but I said, uh, Mary, I need you in the office stat. And she ran up there in 10 seconds. And she said, what do you need? And I said, I need to know where this invoice needs to get posted. And she said, do you know what stat means? And I said, I just know you come fast when somebody says it. And she said, it means there's like a major medical problem in here. So uh, (laughs) I was embarrassed and never did it again.
1: Right. There's ASAP and there's stat. You don't think anything can get hotter than ASAP, but yes,
0: especially in
1: a medical facility.
0: Right. Well, I was an accounting major for a reason, and not a not a doctor uh, major for yes. a reason.
1: Well, let's, well, one of these things I was interesting too, just kind of digging in your background is your experience as a collegiate athlete. But but before we go there, let's go further back. Um, what did you learn about leadership on your seventh grade basketball team? You
0: know, I was. Uh, I was, uh, I was captain of my seventh grade team, which really doesn't mean a whole lot. It means you just get to go out and talk to the officials and they tell you how they're going to call the game and keep your teammates in line. And about two weeks into the season, I got a call from the, uh, you know, this is before cell phones and texting and all that. And I got a call at home from the, from the basketball coach who happened to play professional basketball. And, uh, he said, I'm going to be late for practice and I would like you to run practice. and you know, it was only for about 45 minutes. I'll be honest with you. It seemed like it was about 45 hours because you're trying to get your peers as you're a 12 year old to fall in line. Uh, but it taught me valuable lessons. You know, I appreciated the fact that a third party like that, who I, I always wanted to play basketball. I mean, I grew up playing ball. And, you know, as you mentioned, I played in college many, many years ago. Uh, but it made me feel good that someone who had played at the professional level saw leadership potential in me on the court to do something like that. And, and, and in kind of a negative way, uh, I got to see how my friends and teammates reacted when the when the real coach wasn't there. You know, So th- that's probably <laughs> one of the many things in my life that has forged cynicism for me. It's probably why I became an auditor. You know, trust me. <laughs> uh, I'm going to double
1: check though. Yeah. In so, that moment it says, it was kind of like dad throwing you the car keys. You right. Know, like, hey. And you're like, really? I just started driving. Right, like, exactly. I, I trust you.
0: Exactly. So, you know, it it just it, it taught a lot of good, valuable lessons about human nature and and you, you know, I mean, to me, it's I, I've always kind of said, Don't show me the guy who scores the touchdown celebration. Show me the guy who led him across the goal line. And and mm-hmm. I think true character shines in the face of adversity. And I think really when no one's watching, and in this particular instance with, you know, I was being put in a position to lead and lead my young peers at the time. And when the cat was away, the mice played. You know, they knew I yes. was the coach. And so it just, it taught me a little bit about leadership, you know, so even at an early age like that.
1: What a great experience. I mean, you never know when those moments are going to show up for you. And it sounds like it, it made such an indelible mark on you leadership wise. Uh, I remember I, for me, boy and boy scouts, I look back at that time like, man, that really made an impact on me because that was some of my first sort of real leadership experiences sure. where I was leading a a patrol of kids at a camp out, starting, you know, starting fires, cooking over the fire, chopping wood. So if I couldn't, I cannot, could I don't know if I would allow myself nowadays at that age to do that kind of thing but it really forms you. I, mean, and it it's incredible. And I think it's so important for, for people as young adults in some way to get, have an experience like that. I
0: agree. I, I wish I would have known more of what you just said, what, how, what the responsibility truly was at the time. At the time, you just think you're doing something. And now you look back on and think, man, there was some adult who saw enough in me
1: to do this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's important for people to, to have that. And fast-forwarding to now, I'm just curious. You, it seems. I bet. I suspect you have those moments when someone opens up a new franchise, where you're the equivalent of the NBA coach, (laughs) and you're like, "Hey, you're running practice today, huh?"
0: Yeah, you know, when you're a when you're a franchisee, you're buying into a system and and you know processes and procedures and and what I try to tell franchisees who come in new to the system or even when you're talking to the team, it's like you don't need to have all the answers. I mean, I can assure you if there's a problem that comes up. I mean, Penn Station was started in 1985. And if a problem comes up for you that's brand new, there is a strong likelihood that someone else experienced it. Hmm. And I think what often happens is people believe not only do they need to, if if you're not in a position of leadership, I believe not only do they need to um, find the problem, but they need to solve the problem. And I Mm -hmm. think it's more important to recognize a problem there. And if you don't know the answer, to seek help to the problem with other people who are more knowledgeable on the topic. And so... What we try to do for Penn Station and our franchisees is give them benchmarking tools that allows them to be compared with their peers. Um, Because if you're running, you know, if you're running late, if you're doing $60,000 a month in sales and you're running 20% labor, but I can show you 10 franchisees who are running 18% labor, that's going to have a greater impact on, on we allowing, you know, being able to influence you. So So, no,
1: go ahead. Well so I'm thinking a lot of our a lot a lot of our people listening today, uh, probably at least from what we understand about about our audience, they have jobs or they're leading organizations you know, at, at the higher level and some some are running maybe their own companies and they may be thinking about franchise model but have never gone down that road before. What's your advice to them in in trying to understand if going into this world makes sense for them, or if they'd be better suited to, to stay in their current role in, in sort of a more corporate environment?
0: Well, franchising stage entrepreneurialism, it, it's the person who wants to work for themselves, but doesn't want to create something. And it's not for everybody. I mean, you know, franchising can be, it can be lucrative, but it's very, very hard work. And uh, when you're when you're the owner, you're 24 seven, you know, you can get the calls at any time of the night. And and we have franchisees who get those 3 a.m. calls because the alarm went off or somebody, you know, broke into the into the building. And I think it's, you know, so I I would decide, do I really want to be my own boss? But, Mm -hmm. But I think it's important when you are franchising, you are you are basically leasing someone else's brand for a period of time, you know, most often 20 year period. And it's a marriage. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a marriage and there is a contractual relationship between the franchisor and the franchisee. And uh, you, you want to make sure that you buy into the, you, you believe in the product, you believe in the brand, and you believe in leadership. I mean, Mm -hmm. why would you go into business with someone you didn't like? And you may like the product, but you don't like leadership. But chances are, leadership's not going anywhere. So you need to be able to check all the boxes. Um, I'd mm-hmm. want to talk to other franchisees. I would want to know what they think about the brand and leadership, and are they being sincere in what they've told me, or or are they selling me a bill of goods? I mean, there, there's no such thing as a bad resume, right? So. You know, you're not going to get, you're not going to get in an exploration day and everybody point out what the brand Mm -hmm. is wrong. They're going to talk about how great the brand is, but I would want to talk to franchisees in the system. And I'd want to talk to franchisees who have gotten out of the system and why they got out. Was it not right for them? Or was it something that the brand did or didn't do? And then I would assess accordingly from there.
1: Love that. Some really great tips for people to really kickstart that conversation and thought process and to understand a little bit about what's under, quote, under the hood of the franchise before they get into it. Right. But, um, yeah, it sounds like my, my understanding of it, I'm not anywhere near the expert you are, but it sounds like um, starting one can be a challenge the first time. You, and you have a lot of learning, and the the more that you can own, right? The goal, I suspect, of most franchises, people that get into the franchise world or to own and run multiple because that's where this you really benefit from the scalability of of the talent that you're working with, your own, your own understanding and wisdom of the business. Uh is that is that sort of the long-term key to to successful owning franchises?
0: I think you hit the nail on the head. It's about scalability. And in and, and order to get to scalability, you have to be organized and diligent and you have to have systems and procedures in place.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: You know, you, you and I could start a Penn Station restaurant and we could take turns running it on a daily basis. And then we could open a second one and you run one and I run the other. But what happens when we do a third, a fourth, and a fifth? You know, if, if we don't have systems and procedures in place for people to ex- explicitly follow, and I mean everything, then left to their own devices, people are just going to yep. do what they think is best. And it doesn't mean that their decision is wrong. It just means it's not consistent for our organization. Mm-hmm. So scalability is the key, though, and I believe, franchising.
1: Great. Well, Craig, starting to wind this up. This has been a very, very fun interview, very informative, lots of good leadership tips. I was really, uh, and right out of the gate, it was really cool learning some of the great strategies around handling crisis and communicating in a crisis. Um, What are your parting thoughts for the listeners today?
0: You know, it's, uh, I think that, uh, wow, that's a really, really good question. I think you just, you know, it's it's the golden rule with whatever you're doing in an organization. I think whether or not you're at the top or you just started with an organization. I mean, I, I think back when I, you know, when I first graduated from college and I remember thinking about it, I wasn't a heavy reader at the time. And uh I remember grabbing a leadership book and trying to get some nuggets out of it. And I was twenty-two years old, and the next thing I knew, I was reading a second and a third one and mm-hmm. You know, one day I I was probably in my mid forties and I look up on the shelf and I probably got 250 leadership books and, uh, you know, and it all started Mm -hmm. with, it all started with that first one.
1: Do you remember what the first one was?
0: No, I don't. I don't. I was big into leadership and negotiation. I mean, I'm a big fan of Jim Collins and I like him. I like Malcolm Gladwell because of his contrarian approach to everything. Uh, Covey, Stephen Covey was one of the great ones The seven habits a highly effective yes. people. And my
1: book, uh, I I've, I've got a torn and tattered version paperback version of the seven habits, which I think is one of the most widely read books in the world.
0: I, I would get my hands on anyone I could read. I, you know, and I didn't think that I would read this book and get 500 pieces of information, but I thought if I read 500 books and I get three out of each of them, suddenly I've got a lot of nuggets,
1: but do you record your the any of the ideas anywhere, or do you are you a highlighter, or what's I'll your? How do you, I will highlight. Yes, I will highlighter in a book.
0: I will definitely highlight, but I, I think it's about doing what you say you're going to do when you're saying you're going to do it. You know, being being passionate about it and not going through the motions. You you know, it's easy to be on task when people are watching you, but what are you doing when nobody's watching and it's just you between your, your two ears. Mm -hmm. So I've always tried to lead my life like that business wise and, and personally and, and just with everything that I do, you know, do it like no one's watching. Great. When when I was in college, my senior year, I was interviewing for a, You know, to work in public accounting, I'd said earlier that I wanted to be a managing partner one day. And I had interviewed with probably 10 accounting firms, all of the big ones. And I remember my last interview, I was so sick of it and felt like I just had to put on an air with every one of these people I was talking to. And the last firm that I went to, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to be me. If they don't like me, I don't care. It's just I'm going to be Craig Dunaway. And so I went into the interview, um, you know, afterwards, it was a half an hour interview. And I literally had to go from the interview to get a bus to go out of town for a basketball game. And one of the guys said, hey, I think you had an interview. How'd it go? I'm like, I don't know. I just went in and basically was myself and that's it. So we'll see what happens. I got a call the next day and they had called me in for an interview, second interview. And that's where I ultimately became a partner at the firm. And It's like. Quit, quit being somebody else, just be yourself. And, yeah. uh, so, you know, I never looked back. From, I never looked back from that. And what you see with me is what you're going to get. If you don't like me, I'm sorry, I, but I can't change who I am.
1: Yeah. There's a real power in letting go being you. And the, 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 the precursor to that of course is preparation, which it sounds like you did, but we got that call. Hey, you were ready to go.
0: Well, and, and I know I, that's true. And I could not agree more with what you just said, because it, in a leadership role, if you're trying to please everyone, you please no one. Mm. Somebody has to make decisions. And those decisions often may be unpopular. But if you have the greater good at focus, how can someone be critical of that? So tell me a really good lesson about just being yourself and doing what you think's right.
1: Craig, thanks for coming on the show today.
0: Ben, really appreciate it. Thanks for uh, the opportunity.
1: If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to BenFanning.com/quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative: The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping.
0: Ben Fanning is a number one best selling author, Inc. magazine columnist, and CEO of The Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.